on a general population front, when you are doing aging clock analysis on different tissue, we see that, you know, lung, liver, bladder, they tick faster uh, than many other, many other tissue types, like, for example, muscle. However, in the context of an individual, they might have different uh, individual longevity bottlenecks. Then personalized risk and benefit analysis of interventions. So some people are more risk averse, some people are less risk averse. So we need to look at longevity products as financial products. Look at longevity interventions as a venture business. So you need to understand that many of those unproven and maybe less proven interventions, uh, they bear a certain risk, but they can also give you a certain return. So the individual advisor may provide additional guidelines and guidance on how to plan their longevity interventions based on risk-benefit analysis. So now actually we're coming up with what we call know your patient strategy and questionnaire to understand that risk profile uh, and educational profile. And then of course, uh, we can slow down aging with different interventions. And that needs to be driven by aging clocks that measure every level of uh, human organization. In this session, Alex Zaronkorov, CEO and founder of Insilico Medicine and Deep Longevity, offers his roadmap for what he calls longevity as a service. He explains the approach Deep Longevity and Young AI are taking, the various clocks and machine learning methods they're using, the necessity for physician education and coordinated building of a longevity ecosystem, spanning physicians, clinics, insurers, academia, pharma, and more. You can find the seminar summary and slides for this meeting and other Foresight Biotech Health Extension meetings sponsored by 100 Plus Capital at foresight.org. Today, I'm going to be talking with you about longevity as a service or loss. I think I coined the term. I'm going to speak from the position of uh, deep longevity officer of uh, deep longevity. Uh, deep longevity is a, a spin-off out of Encelico Medicine. We spun it off uh, in 2019, even though we've been doing work on aging clocks since our very inception. And um, we sold it to a company called uh, Regent Pacific. Uh, it's publicly traded on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange 0575, and hence uh, the disclaimer, so not an investment advice, never buy the stock based this kind of presentations, especially if it's by me. Uh, a few words about uh, Regent Pacific, the mothership of this of, of Deep Longevity. So the chairman of uh, that uh, uh, company and the founder is actually Jim Mellon as well. So a very famous person in our in our field. So if you look at his bio, he actually kind of originated. Uh, he started his career in Hong Kong, and uh, he has deep affinity with the region. So it's not uh, a paper company. It's actually it's the entire floor in the Hanley Building, right next to HSBC, and uh, it's a holding company. They returned quite a bit of money to the shareholders over the years. And now they are also focusing on longevity and also male health. So they have some other products uh, in the pipeline focusing on male health, primarily in China. So before I start, shameless promotion of our annual meeting, currently, I think the largest in the world in drug discovery in aging research. Last year, it was 2.6 thousand people. You can see that it's supported by all the major journals, Lancet, Major Frontiers, uh, eLife is sponsoring it, and Frontiers is sponsoring it, and also aging. Usually we publish the proceeds. 
This year, it's going to be our eighth annual. And for the first time, we'll have the Longevity Medicine Workshop to specifically focus on not only the science of aging, but also on clinical applications, because you cannot do longevity as a service without the physician's buy-in. And we are doing a lot of work right now to, to, to actually steer the physicians into the field of longevity, give them the ability to speak the same language, at least introduce the very basic concepts and uh, provide them with a toolkit that they can uh, use in order to also engage in NF1 studies and experimental medicine. So one interesting kind of factoid is that in December last year, myself, Morten Scheibe-Knutsen, we developed a course called the Introduction to Longevity Medicine for Physicians and put it on Udemy. And you can see that, you know, 2.6 thousand MDs took it. And it's, it's a pretty popular course now. And we decided to also make it free because, you know, Udemy does not allow you to, to put just free course that is more than an hour, I think, online. So we moved to Teachable and you can actually find this course on longevity degree. We're making a portal now for longevity education. Because I think that the bottleneck and also the central driving force are the physician. I think that physicians are the core kind of bottleneck and the central driving force. That's why we cannot really ignore them. And we need to ensure that we engage them. And I I think that I might not be the first person to say that, but our industry will move at the same speed as the physicians do. So... We cannot move faster than the physicians if you are to provide longevity as a service. So you need to engage physicians, and that's what we are trying to do as much as possible. As you can see, it's actually gaining traction. There are not that many longevity physicians in the world, and many of them took this course. So now that we've moved to uh, longevity to degree, you can actually take a two and a half hour course. It's all of them are likely to be free. This one is definitely uh, free. We also moved it into Chinese. So I think that China is going to be a major driver for anything, uh, including longevity. So actually, if you haven't been to China, I highly encourage you to come here because it's, it's just marvelous. So everything is high tech and it's you know, outpacing Japan in terms of technological innovations, trains, everything. So in longevity, there are also multiple efforts for people who really want to get more out of, of, the, out of their life. And they understand that money is not just where it ends. So they're spending money on this, and uh, there are multiple pretty substantial initiatives in longevity medicine as well. By the way, we also got uh, CME accreditation for this course. So if you are a medical doctor and if you take this course, you get 2.75 AMA credits and you get a proper certificate. So I think that's uh, probably the first uh, longevity medicine for physicians course that is CME accredited. Took us uh, about half a year to do, but now you actually can get a medical certification to when, when, when you do that. So... Now I'll just switch gears and talk a bit uh, a bit about, I think that you are convinced that aging is bad. Humans, I think, are the only species that also understand consciously that they are aging and dying and that the future is bleaker than today after 25 for women and 34 males. So everything else, everything in the future is downhill and nature even evolved us to ignore this problem consciously 
and focus on more current events, right? That's why FFF takes precedence uh, over anything and it becomes addictive. So we try to avoid thinking about aging and we are now starting to think about prevention and prevention is possible. You can move this curve to the right slightly, but at the end of the day, if it's diet, exercise, sleep, you pretty much get to the same end, maybe a little bit healthier and a little bit longer, but still you are losing actually in Chinese, uh, aging is very often associated with losing. So, so that's why people don't like to talk about it. But we want to talk about it and we can think about possible ways to track, repair and improve. So I think that we should not be shy. Very uh, many people think about this as not a credible goal. And I think that now this movement is becoming more credible, but people are still uh, too afraid of uh, giving themselves false hopes. And they're still trying to plan their lives, uh, life, lives and uh, their you know reproductive cycles, and their outlook on life is very similar to what it was you know centuries ago. How can we provide longevity as a service today, right? Because there is actually the toolkit is very limited, and from my perspective, if we are moving at the same speed as the physicians do, it's going to take us a very long time to be able to you know save. The baby boomers, for example, because chances are that by the time we get rejuvenative technologies in the hands of medical doctors, it's going to be a little bit too late for the baby boomers. That's why we are trying to define the field of longevity medicine. Longevity medicine is cutting-edge research, science, therapy, and diagnostic. Currently, it is primarily focused on participatory medicine and personalized science. I hope that you can see the slide, longevity. And uh, it's powered by biomarkers of aging and longevity, predictive and prognostic. It's data-driven, individualized, and preventative. And now we have artificial intelligence to help us move in this field. And traditional preventative medicine looks at the patient in the context of their age range and in the context of their well-being for that age range. So if you don't have too many comorbidities when you are 60, the doctor would still diagnose you as healthy. However, if you compare yourself in the context of your entire lifespan, you are much worse off than when you, are, when you compare yourself to when you're 30. Ideally, we want to look at, at the person in the context of the entire lifespan and figure out how to bring the patient back to the ultimate healthy state, which would be you know, 20 to 35 or 20 to 40 at least. So how do we track, repair, and rejuvenate? So basically it's sense in action. How do we turn sense into clinical practice for those of you who are familiar with Aubrey's work? And AI can help with that. Now, how do we do this in the context of longevity as a service? Well, that would require, as I define kind of seven pillars of of clin clinical engagement. So first you need to educate and involve. So for that, we've got this longevity medicine course for both physicians and actually consumers can take it as well. It's just two and a half hours. The reason why we made it uh, so is that physicians are very busy and in two and a half hours, you can just you know get all the content you need to um, be able to navigate in this space. Then you need to do uh, really advanced anamnesis data analysis. So basically questions and answers uh, with a patient. Now AI can help with that as well. Comprehensive longitudinal diagnostics. So we need to collect data over time. And all of you who are not collecting the data are losing already because it's extremely important to have uh, 
this benchmark ideal you to be able to your future self back to as as close as uh, to this ideal version of yourself as possible. We need to identify what I call longevity bottlenecks. So the aging clocks that are ticking faster and the aging clocks that are in the areas that are likely to uh, age faster in the context of an individual patient and uh, drive the rest of the uh, organism with them. So I see, for example, on the, for, on the general population front, when you are doing aging clock analysis on different tissue, we see that, you know, lung, liver, kidney, bladder, they tick faster uh, than many other, many other tissue types, like, for example, muscle. However, in the context of an individual, they might have different individ, uh, individual longevity bottlenecks. Then personalized risk and benefit analysis of interventions. So some people are more risk-averse, some people are less risk-averse. So we need to look at longevity products as financial products because uh, and uh, look at longevity interventions as a venture business. So you need to understand that many of those unproven and maybe less proven interventions, uh, they bear a certain risk, but they can also give you a certain return. So the individual and their advisor or financial advisor, longevity advisor may provide additional guidelines and guidance on how to plan their longevity interventions based on risk benefit analysis. So now actually we're coming up with what we call know your patient strategy and questionnaire to understand that risk profile uh, and educational profile. And then, of course, uh, we can slow down on reverse aging with different interventions. And that needs to be driven by aging clocks that measure every level of uh, human organization. So who are the stakeholders in the longevity economy? So what do we need to do to get to the point where we can provide longevity as a service and we can get the doctors engaged? Doctors won't just engage without, without the clinical protocols without the proper training, and they all follow the rules. They're all certified. So a lot of stakeholders need to engage in order for the doctors to be able to follow. And those are, well, first of all, acad academics. So what should we expect from academia today and also in the near future? Of course, we see major advances pretty much everywhere. You know, the worms live 10 times longer. We see major advances in, uh, in mice. We see new gera protectors. Uh, new companies are entering the field. New academics are entering the field. And in China, for example, the Chinese government also wisely prioritized aging for the next five-year plan. And more action is expected to come from those efforts. However, the academic efforts, uh, you know, I, I operate in the pharmaceutical industry at Ancilico. So for the academic breakthrough to come into the pharmaceutical clinical trials, it's usually, you know, five to 10 years. And then clinical trials take another five to 10. So if you look at the field of immuno-oncology, uh, the academic, re uh, which is pretty, 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 pretty rapidly progressed, uh, we see that uh, it progressed over the course of 15 years from academic breakthroughs, those early PD-1s, PD-1s, and started picking up, right? If you look at the history of uh, those checkpoint inhibitors that are now you know, driving progress in oncology. This is 20 years ago, 2002, 2000. And then they started to be commercialized around 2010, 2008, 2010. And only now you've got an avalanche of those uh, products on the market that are now saving lives. But uh, for longevity interventions, it's probably even longer because you still need to go through this. So uh, a lot of academic efforts should be encouraged and we should understand the basic science currently, but we also need to look at what we can do today. 
And if we look at what is available in the pharmaceutical industry today, I think that it would be probably not even too ostentatious to say that uh, you know I probably am one of the most uh, uh, informed people in terms of the pharmaceutical industry's efforts in aging research. I work with top 25 pharma companies at Silico, and uh, out of the top 20, at least six prioritized analytics, for example, in their early stage. However, if you look at the at, at those efforts and how they come and go in, in pharma at GSK, for example, or Navarre, they're not really prioritizing the, this R&D for the clinical use, right? It's just they need to spend a certain amount of money on R&D. They do it. They try to be prepared for what's in, uh, in the biotech sector, so to be able to acquire. Uh, so we shouldn't really expect huge progress from the pharmaceutical industry over the next uh, uh, 10 years. And currently, of course, there are very promising companies like, for example, BioAge. So Christian Fortney just in licensed some assets from Taisha and other companies, the inhibitors that might be repurposed and purposed for aging. Uh, it's a very similar story to RestorBio. We understand that the practical utility of those, of those interventions in the context of possible longevity gains is marginal. So we're not looking at you know, 50 years plus. So we really need to engage pharmaceutical industry and look at them uh, seriously. But at the same time, we shouldn't expect uh, too much, right? Because they are driven uh, by the market. And currently, nobody's, nobody has put the aging and longevity on the flag and decided to go and you know, phase three clinical trials for that. So from, from the clinics, we also should not uh, expect significant progress because the clinics are driven by the medical doctors, by the medical community, and also by scale. So in order for you to institutionalize a longevity intervention and make it big, you really need to have scale. So you need to have something like McDonald's or something like, you know, retail clinics. And there are some clinics like that in the States now, pretty broadly with many digital tools for diagnostics. But for treatment, you still need to go through the classical physician and, uh, and in the hospital. So clinics will follow the clinical protocols unless you're talking about some illegal clinics in Mexico and some exploratory and of one studies within some small practices. Currently, they lack scale. And insurance companies, I think that so my big bet is on the insurance companies because currently they need to compete and become more innovative. And many of them do. So they are trying to look for additional interesting products for both customer acquisition and uh, also for underwriting. And some of them are even combining the, the two and uh, allowing for some additional health procedures to be performed on uh, really, let's say, high net worth uh, life insurance customers. However, again, there is no major central effort. So what I'm basically where I'm leading to is that you need to figure out how to turn this into a longevity ecosystem faster and uh, accelerate. And the, the way to do this, as again, in my mind, you have to work with the physicians and the physicians need to be the driving force. They need to demand those interventions. They need to start experimenting. And in terms of what we can do today and tomorrow, again, there is not that much. So we are still dancing around diet, exercise, sleep, and some very basic gera protectors and uh, basically do, do what your mother told you and uh, get a uh, more frequent diagnosis. So currently the, the outlook on the near term is actually quite bleak, but what we can do tomorrow, and uh, this is a slide from the longevity medicine. So you can see that there are um, drugs out there. Some of them are, have been on clinical trials. Some of them are in clinical trials. 
So we should expect some of them to come to the market. Some are actually already on the market, like an ID boosters that are likely to give you maybe a small edge, but also increase the risk to risk of cancer. And uh, now we see that there are some other effects uh, on blood biochemistry because we have a large uh, cohort of people who are taking NMN and NR in high doses and we have their blood. So not all the effects are positive. There is glucosamine that you can take right now. I think that's probably one of the safer GR protectors. And this is the toolkit that a longevity physician can use today. Some of those treatments will be highly quote-unquote experimental, like rapamide. I cannot confirm or deny that you know I take it, but I do have uh, some with me just for as, as a kind of lucky charm. And this is what you can play with. What's coming up uh, is some promising targets, some promising interventions. Now there are multiple uh, interventions. You can now combine them. And uh, the first step that we can do currently, and that's available, that is tangibly proven to bring value, are the different measurements tool for tools for aging. And the biomarkers of aging are now becoming available and are more popular. But, you know, and we are one of the kind of thought leaders in the field. I published multiple papers in this area. And I must tell you that we're still scratching the surface. We do not really understand what do this. We do not really understand how to properly combine them and how to improve them. So they give you a really good picture of, of aging, something that we can turn into a digital twin. So, of course, we're trying to get there, but I think that we are very, very far from this. And actually, that's why I deeply respect the work of, for example, Vadim Gladyshev and scientists in the same league who are really trying to dig down and dig deep into the very basic biology of aging and even going back into, you know, in utero and looking at how we age. Because currently, we, we don't understand what those biomarkers are telling us, but we can now predict your age. So we can predict your age with a good, uh, good mean absolute error, and we can now interpret those aging clocks uh, into specific individual features that now we can even tweak. Whether it's going to benefit you or not, most of the time we do not know. But some of those biomarkers are modifiable. And I think this is the first frontier to a longevity ecosystem. And of course, uh, you've got lectures on uh, every one of those clocks already. The first one was Horvath and Hanum, published approximately at the same time. Epigenetic aging clocks. Epigenetic aging clocks are the most accurate, but the, mo but the most difficult to interpret or turn into therapeutic intervention at this point in time, unless you're doing reprogramming, demethylation or remethylation. And AI can help with the methylation clocks as well. It can help in many ways. So what I specialize in is deep generative reinforcement learning. So generative adversarial networks allow you to create uh, synthetic data, synthetic uh, profiles of people. Here, those images are computer generated in 2017. So those are early days of GANs. Nowadays, those people are completely indistinguishable from reality. You can basically describe what you want to see. Uh, you can say, I want to see a white male with blue eyes uh, and with sunglasses and with and bold. And you'll get a distribution of those. Or you can give a network a template. Let's say you give it Brad Pitt and say, okay, well, show me Brad Pitt, who is 80 Asian and uh, female. And uh, the many features of Brad Pitt will be retained and you'll get a distribution of those, of those images where the generation conditions are confirmed. We use that technique a lot to synthesize biological and we also use it for biomarker discovery, target ID. So you can tweak some features in, in gene expression data, for example, when you're when, when you giving a network of a template 
and then you ask this network to generate a distribution of people from uh, uh, the current age all the way to let's say 120, or you can uh, play around with it and try to go 150 and see uh, how those features change in time. So pretty much like aging a picture, but instead of a picture, you're aging another biological data type. So that's how you can also identify targets and promising interventions. The same technique can be used in many other areas of human biology research and chemistry research. So we use it a lot for molecular generation. That's what in silicos and silico medicines primary expertise is. And uh, that's where we managed to establish collaborations with pretty much every big pharma, which is innovative. So many of them are deploying our software or deployed our software. We can also now use it for mental health, depression, motivation, behavioral modification research. And of course, for aging biomarker discovery. So deep longevity is now in all of those areas. You can see that even from synthetic data, you can now derive the most valuable biological uh, data, which is age. And the way we do it, we use uh, feed-forward neural networks, convolutional deep neural networks, and uh, other machine learning techniques where we feed a specific data type into a model annotated by age with as many features as you want to predict just one feature, age. And with the increasing level of sophistication of those models, and also with the increasing granularity of data, you can now try to go and understand basic biology uh, or even basic psychology through those networks. So we're experimenting with that a lot. Also with some non-traditional data types like psychological survey, you can try to go and understand the causality of the different biological processes by predicting age in different age groups and looking at how important the features are for predicting age, for example, within a specific age group and deriving the possible drivers. So trying to establish the cause and effect diagrams. But again, synthetic data generation currently is one of the most valuable achievements of deep generative AI. Now you can also train on age, and then you can add additional neuron for health status, for example, for a disease. And we've done, we've done that recently at Ancilico. So about a couple of years ago, we identified a novel antifibrotic set of, set of antifibrotic targets and discovered molecules for those targets. But the main idea for those target discovery efforts came from this diagram. So we basically trained on age and then retrained on different types of fibrosis, identified valuable targets by looking at uh, the different features that might be causal, might be might be driving the fibrotic process, and then we put them put them into pathways and uh, established biological relevance, the disease hypothesis, and identified targets. So you can do this for many other processes, and also it provides you with a pretty good business model because if you are targeting an age-related disease uh, and at the same time aging itself, uh, that provides you with a clinical pathway where 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 you can do a net present value on the asset and get a pretty substantial valuation for your company and fundraise for additional research. So, and possibly that drug might work in aging as well. And there are multiple biomarkers of aging that are using deep learning. So I think that the first one that was published in a peer-reviewed journal was published by my group, by a brilliant young scientist, Evgeny Putin, uh, no relationship to the uh, other Putin. And we got uh, the first blood-based aging clock with mean absolute error five to six years with reasonable R-square. And now it's a workhorse clock for us uh, since 2016. So a lot of uh, people are using it. And now a lot of people are replicating the work and turning it into commercial practice. 
We also published a transcriptomic aging clock. We published it as a patent, patented clock, actually granted. And microbiomic aging clocks, uh, different imaging uh, clocks, facial imaging clocks, physical activity clocks, uh, psychological aging clocks. And uh, here is just our kind of efforts in publishing in this area. I will collaborate with some of the giants in the field, including Vadim Gladyshev and including Eric Verden and And so far, we've developed uh, a variety of aging clocks that can uh, cater to this longevity as a service community from different angles to different stakeholders. So the real workhorse clock is the deep hematological aging clock. So this is basic blood tests. And now we also, through generative approach, we can take very small number of markers, let's say 20, 25, uh, and then reconstruct the rest using GANs if we are lacking. But of course, if we get up to 70 parameters where we do have abundant training, the prediction is becoming more valuable and, uh, and we can interpret it with, with more utility because now we can also look at specific features that we can change in order for you to look younger to the deep neural network, even on this data type. So most of our experiments and also most of the published work is on deep hematological aging clock. We call them blood age. We also, of course, the most valuable clock that uh, I know of is the deep transcriptomic and deep proteomic aging clock. So we've built uh, a bunch and patented. There you can derive valuable uh, targets from the, uh, from the clocks. And also uh, they're much more interpretable than any other data type, but they're also much more variable. Microbiomic aging clocks and psychological aging clocks are also currently being deployed by our company. The very say so a simple idea and the concept of a deep aging clock, I already kind of depicted it before. You take a very large number of features, let's say, you know, 50 markers, 40 markers, very large number of profiles annotated with, the, with, with age. And you train deep neural networks with the features, uh, the, for example, blood markers on the input layer. So it could be your albumin, glucose, alkaline phosphatase, urea, bond, going on the input layer. Then you have many interconnected layers of neurons and one neuron on the output predicting your age. You can either use one deep neural network or you can stack them into an ensemble. And now, of course, you know, this was 2015 when we did this work in 2016. Now, of course, those are much more advanced, but the basic concept is preserved. So you've got different features on the input and just one feature on the output and you get pretty reasonable prediction accuracy. So in our first clock, we've got 5.5 mean absolute error. And at that time, we started noticing that people who are predicted to be older, they also have all kinds of comorbidities and they are less healthy. And people who are predicted to be younger than their chronological age, they are usually healthier and they have less comorbidities. And we've demonstrated another paper where we compared different populations, Canadians, Koreans, Eastern Europeans. We showed that in every population, if you are predicted to be five years or older than your chronological age, and by the way, we tested on uh, an independent data set that was not used in, uh, in training, annotated also with mortality. So if you're predicted to be five years or older than your chronological age, your hazard ratio increases substantially. If you are predicted to be younger than your chronological age, five years or younger, your hazard ratio decreases substantially. So this is extremely important for underwriting for insurance companies. Uh, and also important for the longevity clinics when they explain to customers why they need those clocks. So once you're, well, once you can uh, tell a story that uh, those clocks are valuable because you can decrease the risk of dying of any cause, uh, people have become more engaged actually in both communities. And this is the kind of central basis for connecting the clinics and insurance companies together with the clients, because in this case, the interests of all parties are aligned. And this is how you can really provide the longevity as a service 
in the future. So that's what we are trying to, to build this interlink between the insurance company, the clinic, and the customer. We have published a multiple aging clocks using different data types, but the philosophy is the same. You take a bunch of data, train deep neural network to predict the chronological age in a reasonably healthy state, and then try to deconvolute those networks into most important features and try to interpret. Currently, we developed uh, two tools at Deep Longevity that kind of try, are trying to bring the ecosystem together. So one is a young AI app, which implements multiple aging clocks, and you can access it for free right now at young.ai. You can upload your blood tests, you can upload the PDF, you can take a picture of the PDF, and it will take your blood biomarkers and predict your biological age. And then tell you what features are driving driving the prediction, and then you can work with a physician to modulate those features in order for you to become younger. And we also work with the clinics. Currently, 18 clinics have deployed those aging clocks, including some of the really elite clinics like Human Longevity in San Diego and several others like Hookah, for example, in London and LifeHub in Hong Kong and many others, Boulder Longevity. So many of those clinics are experimenting with those clocks in one way or another, but now we're getting quite a bit of data before and after intervention. So for the clinics, we provide those kind of reports, we call age metric reports, where the different data types are being sent to the network. We do not know who is uh, the patient. We are only using anonymized data. So we do not keep the personal data in any way. The uh, data hits the network and the network just provides the uh, automated report, uh, the predicted age, and then pr- provides you with the uh, different recommendations. Usually we work with uh, kind of the workhorse algorithm is optimized for 39 markers. That's blood, ba- blood, blood age optimum. It has a slightly higher price tag. Those are very cheap tests because we're already using so- somebody's data that, that was collected elsewhere. And blood age minimum, 31 markers. As you can see, no rocket science, all the very standard markers like potassium, chloride, sodium, uh, white, white blood counts, red blood counts, glucose, bilirubin, bond, ferritin, creatinine, so very, very um, simple markers, but they are actually telling a really interesting story. And you can narrow them down back to the individual organs. And how it works uh, in this part of the longevity service, you can take a simple blood test, request a report. As a physician, you can review the report, help make some changes, and then follow up again and do this again. And currently we're doing it with uh, several clinics. We hope to be able to publish soon because now we have quite a bit of evidence that some interventions might be moving the needle in one way or another. And those age metric reports are also quite interpretable. So some are less interpretable, some are more interpretable. For example, psychological aging clocks are very interpretable. Hematological aging clocks are also very interpretable by the physician and transcriptomic aging clocks you can interpret using an algorithm, but also already using the experience you got by interpreting the aging clocks where the features are very well known and understood and people are trained to tell the story based on those features. So this is how those features look like. So for example, we we tell you, okay, your white blood count is here, total cholesterol is here, maybe it's within range, but if you want to be five years younger, you need to, let's say, reduce the cholesterol to this level. And uh, recommended value is, let's say, 174. And then you will shave a few years from your predicted age and get to, let's say, 36. And currently, you are older. So currently, this is the structure of the report. Human Longevity is also one of the very active users. So I actually highly recommend going to HLI and getting their comprehensive test. So you will know that you're cancer-free. 
but at the same time, they will give you the aging clocks. Uh, you can also see how much does individual feature like albumin glucose, triglycerides, cholesterol contribute to you looking younger or older. And uh, what happens if we modify that feature to, to a specific value in the reference range? So you can see that, you know, albumin provides, in, in this case, is making you younger and glucose here making you older. So 3.9 years than your chronological age. So if you were to modify those features, you can come closer to your chronological age. Or if you want to become younger, the system will tell you how to modify those features to get younger. And you also can use all kinds of techniques like self-organizing maps to show where you need to be to get to your optimal healthy state. Uh, so what do you need to modify over time? Currently, we're doing a lot of research in this area, and we will be trying to deploy some of those tools, also visual tools, for people to try. One other important aspect that we are trying to get into right now, trying to understand, is the psychological age. So currently, if you think about all the features, all uh, anything you can do in the context of aging, the effects will be very marginal. And there is actually not that much you can do. So you can modify sleep, you can modify diet, you can uh, uh, modify um, your exercise routine. But that is what your mother told you, right? But can we... Uh, People are still trying to dig in, you know, what is the optimal diet, Diet. what is the optimal exercise routine. In my mind, of course, it's, uh, it's important research, but not as important as fundamental research in biology of aging. So we thought about, can we get into psychology using AI? So can we try to predict your psychological age? That's the chronological age in the absence, absence of mental uh, uh, health challenges? And can we predict your subjective age? That is, how old do you feel physically and how old do you feel psychologically? Uh, to try to um, maybe play around with the deep neural networks uh, in a way so that we can, as, a hum as humans, interpret those features and see if you know they make sense. So we came up with a hypothesis that biological age and psychological age, such subjective age are connected. We looked uh, for the multiple databases that are available with longitudinal data with surveys, also that links uh, the surveys to some biological data and started working with MIDAS, that's uh, the midlife study in the US data, uh, connecting it to all kinds of other data sets so like Enhance and UK Biobank, and again, came up with two features that I consider to be very important. One is psychological uh, age, which is chronological age in a healthy state. And subjective age, it's basically how old do individuals feel. And now we're even exploring ways to create feedback loops from to basically explain to people how they feel so they can record the feeling and at the same time correlate it with different digital uh, biomarker uh, data and measurements. So they can actually train to feel themselves better because we are actually the ultimate sensor. So how old do you feel? It's a very important question. So we are asking this question and at the same time looking for a very large number of features from survey data and behavioral data that are modifiable. So we are excluding non-modifiable features like, for example, parental age, kids age, as age of death of family members, that you cannot change that. So let's not include it in the predictor. Uh, and we are looking for modifiable factors that are, you know, health status, education, physical activity, longevity expectations is my favorite. Work, biomedical knowledge, another favorite social relationship, psychological support, personal beliefs, another favorite. And then we're predicting age, psychological and subjective age using neural networks and trying to see how those predictions are correlated with different, different factors of well-being.
such as mental health, physical health, resilience to stress, productivity, happiness, longevity, etc. And uh, in our first experiment, what we did, we took Midas data set. Uh, it's anonymized data. So big thanks to the U.S. government for doing that because it really advances uh, not only their social and behavioral research to understand you know, the consumer behavior, it also gives us the uh, opportunity to do this kind of experiments. And uh, what we do, what, what we did with originally about a thousand features that were modifiable, narrowed it down to feature, 50 features and looked at the most important features, uh, adjusted the, uh, the feature list so that we those are interpretable, modifiable, and at the same time, not directly correlated with the chronological age. Uh, and train the predictors uh, for psycho age with about 6.7 years mean absolute error. Now we can go down to uh, about six. Subjective age is about seven mean absolute error, which is pretty good because I, I cannot predict, uh, for example, the opposite sex uh, with the same accuracy. Usually predict them younger significantly. And the deep neural network does it, does it much, much better. Also, we demonstrated that both psychological age and subjective age predictor predictions are very correlated with the with mortality so we cannot predict mortality just in the same way as we do with blood age so if you are predicted to be five years or older the hazard ratio goes up uh, both for psychological age and subjective age and subjective age is actually a very good measure of uh, you know when you're going to die so uh, how old do you feel it's very important then we deconvoluted those uh, networks into features back into features and kind of grouped them into the different risk factor categories and looked into categories like personality psychological beliefs personal well-being demographics health and showed uh, which ones contribute to the hazard ratio more and which ones uh, contribute to the hazard ratio. The most important outcome there was that longevity expectations and the optimistic uh, outlook on life is the most important uh, uh, aspect of both psychological age and uh, subjective age. And the easiest way to modify those is to stretch your longevity expectations. And the best way to stretch those longevity expectations is to strategically deceive yourself that you are going to live longer and the best way to justify it to yourself, because we are actually quite logical beings as well, is to learn about biomedical progress and actually attend sessions like this and then positively reinforce this belief over and over and over. And basically, that's why, for example, Aubrey's teachings and Peter Diamandis's books are so important. Those are technically digital therapeutics for you to be in better mental health. So I never consulted a psychiatrist and I, 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 I actually feel great. I like feeling great. And now I basically came up with a routine for myself to strategically convince myself that I'm going to live longer. And that actually gives you great peace of mind and energy. So you know, if you are to take something away from this lecture, just make sure that uh, you also try to uh, convince yourself that you're going to live longer. And uh, be more optimistic about life and uh, try to go after more challenging projects. So uh, we also started integrating wearables. A lot of people are doing that. Um, we are looking at heart rate and oxygenation of blood and many other readouts that you can take from, from your regular wearable, connecting that uh, together. And uh, this is the tool that we envision to drive the longevity as a service. So currently we provide aging clocks and some very basic recommendations for longevity, and we can provide you with tangible measures and tangible uh, recommendations that you can relate to, to shave some predicted age of your clock. And now we're working with insurance companies. So we've got some uh, pilots, pilots cooking, lots of uh, deployments with clinics already with diagnostic centers. Currently also 
uh, trying to penetrate pharma, both uh, for enrollment and monitoring of clinical trials. Uh, we have a few of the GERA protectors being monitored using these clocks, beauty clinics, wellness centers, beauty product suppliers, and even longevity education. So now we try to deliver this longevity education through the app. And I think it will be great for employers as well, especially for those that uh, are a little bit more innovative. So I, I can envision you know, Amazon or Tesla using something like that to make their uh, staff more optimistic and uh, healthier. So I wonder why people are not doing that. So the major stakeholders, as I mentioned, are clinics, insurance companies, and employers. Uh, one of the major partners, uh, uh, the really amazing clinics, is Human Longevity. Now they're run by uh, Dr. Uh, Wei Wuhu a really amazing Chinese-American, PhD from Baylor, a postdoc at Harvard, MGH, and then became a very successful entrepreneur. So now he uh, runs Human Longevity and provides currently pretty wealthy clients with uh, a very comprehensive uh, health assessment with follow-up. They have a partnership with Harvard MGH to access the doctor network. And now they also offer the aging clocks. They were actually the original investor in Deep Longevity when we spun, spun off. So both ATP Ventures and Human Longevity Venture Fund and actually a few other really very high-profile investors invested. And now we're trying to build the longevity network where it starts with data collection, goes on AI for age prediction. Uh, you've got reports going both to the customer and to the doctor, and then it is being passed to the clinic and also to the insurance companies. So I think that it's extremely important and possibly will be available to academics. Uh, so this is currently the vision. Uh, we're trying to build this vision into reality uh, by partnering uh, with clinics and insurance companies, companies separately. But in the future, we see this as a connected uh, live beating systems. And that's why it's extremely important to standardize those clocks and ensure that people are using uh, just one type, or at least they know how to interpret it. And there is criteria for those clocks. And uh, there is also a hospital path. We, of course, want to, to, to explore all kinds, of, all kinds of experimental interventions and turn uh, the longevity products into essentially venture capital products uh, where you create an actuarial model and look at how much life do you gain and how much risk do you accumulate in the context of your personal longevity. So some things may have, may have side effects, but those side effects might, might not be as important as the life you gain. Uh, so again, uh, we introduced a longevity education program where you can actually learn a little bit more about those uh, concepts and we're offering it to physicians uh, for free. And it's also CME accredited. Don't forget to register for this conference. Uh, this year it's on site in Copenhagen. However, it's also online and all the who is who is going to be there. All the startups are there and I'll ensure that a pretty substantial number of pharmaceutical executives are going to be there as well. So uh, thank you very much. And I uh, would love to answer any questions. Let's uh, connect on WeChat. Wow. Thank you so, so, so much, Alex. This was fantastic. There's very little, I think, that, <laughs> that you don't have your hands involved in. So thank you um, so much. I, I have a bunch of questions on my end, but we have a few here in the chat. Uh, I think first one here, we have Josh. Uh, Josh, if you want to unmute yourself, go for it. Yeah, I was curious. I don't know if you've heard of Forward Health. They're like a clinic in the Bay. I was wondering if you guys have partnered with them or if you can send samples from them. Not yet. If you can help us partner with them, that would be great because I think that this is actually as close to uh, longevity as a service as it can get. And that was the clinic that I was referring to as, you know, McDonald's for, for diagnostics. Technically not the, not the most ideal solution. And of course, they're driven probably using 
by, by other by other motivational factors, but we do collaborate with clinics like that that are preparing to uh, franchise. And there, we're also looking at interventions because, of course, you know, diagnostics is one thing, but then there needs to be a very clear path to an intervention, and uh, that's the only way to make your your application sticky. Because if there is no, imagine Uber without drivers, right? So <laughs> uh, you can see where they are and you can see where you are, but you cannot get from point, point A to point B. So you really need to ensure that there are drivers. And without physicians, it's impossible to, to do that. And uh, yeah, please connect me to, to Forward if, if, if you know these guys. And uh, also very important, one of the reasons why I'm doing this talk is that we are hiring. So we're hiring at senior level, including people in business development. So if you are intertwined in the insurance industry, or if you are good uh, in selling to clinics, we are hiring currently. We're currently looking for a chief business officer and a business development officers, but that's primarily, so it could be very scientific, right? If you are uh, selling to the pharmaceutical industry and uh, there you need to, to provide a lot of evidence that the clocks work in a very specific way and they can measure the outcome measures that uh, the pharma company is interested in. So that's one type of people that we're looking for. Of course, if they're more uh, focused on selling to clinics, that's, that, that's another kind of angle. And for that, very often, you don't even need to have a medical degree. And uh, insurance companies, that's the most important part. Uh, so if you have uh, experience selling into insurance and specifically working at the kind of uh, innovation uh, sourcing level of the organization, uh, we would really like to talk to you. Lovely. Next one up, we have Eduardo. Eduardo, if you can say maybe one sentence about yourself, just let Alex have some context on who you are. So I'm a graduate student at Caltech in the bioengineering program. And recently in the past couple months, I started learning about the field of aging. Before that, my expertise is all like single cell RNA-seq and bioinformatics. So all this stuff is relatively new for me. And one of the things that caught my attention when I started reading about the field was the epigenetic clocks, obviously. As I started reading about them, I was like, holy crap, The just doing linear regression works really well. This seems a little too good to be true. And then I, I, I saw a bunch of papers on not only epigenetic, but also transcriptomic clocks that for longevity and C. elegans worked really well and were also just using linear regression. Um, and I was not aware of all the modalities that you that you showed today. I'm, I'm definitely going to look up at your papers. But my question is... Uh, you talked a lot about deep learning and the issue of having uh, interpretable models. I think that the biggest surprise for me in learning about this field of clocks of aging was how well just plain old linear regression works. And my question is, in your experience, what is the breakdown between situations where linear regression does the trick and situations where it's linear regression is not, is not up to the job, but then uh, you were able to make it work? with uh, a deep learning model? So, you know, I actually, I will probably, because I'm not sure if other people are as uh, good in data science as we are here. So I just refer you to a paper. You can probably see my screen, right? So machine learning on human muscle transcriptomic data. We published it in 2018, but we did the work in 2017. And here in this paper, you can see a comparison of the different algorithms 
and specifically for for ranking. So you can basically look at uh, SVM, Random cool. Forest, ElasticNet, DFS, right? And then you would also look at how uh, they pick the most important features. And some of them have different uh, accuracies. Some of them, they, they have different robustness. But what's important is that how they, which, which features they prioritize, right? And actually by combining multiple machine learning techniques and also linear regression, some just very basic stats, you might be able to sometimes, again, get some biological relevance, right? Uh, yeah. Because you understand how they rank, how they work, right? What, what, what is usually important for a specific algorithm? You understand the amount of data you've got, so number of samples and, uh, and the, the number of features in each sample. And then, you know, once you get the experience of predicting different tissues like this, you see that it's actually sometimes valuable to combine some of those blocks, right? And those methods and also compare them. And then, I mean, here we actually did just very simple border rank the count to do the final rank and we identify some druggable possibly druggable targets for sarcopenia but that was again kind of a very exploratory work that we're not exactly proud of but kind of explains it answers your question yeah definitely thank you so much i'm gonna uh, look at that paper uh, that's thank awesome thank you next on up we have lee hey alex good talk thank you very much so you know, I think it's a bit naive to reset some blood markers to a younger age like cholesterol, because, for example, middle-aged women onwards are more protected by higher cholesterol levels. So I think you'll agree with that. But I, I, I don't you think you wish... yourself. Are you a medical doctor as well or not? Uh, no, no, no. It's Lee Driver. You know, I've been measuring hundreds of biomarkers for many years. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, the geeky guy in Slovenia, right? The Scotsman. So, Alex, the question I wanted to ask is the you quickly said you were not a believer in epigenetic clocks, but you, you passed over it quickly. Could you could you clarify that, please? So, again, I actually am. A, I didn't say that I'm a, not a believer in aging clocks. I said that that's the most uh, accurate biological clock you've got to date is just not very interpretable and it's not super actionable from my standpoint. And I might be wrong. And by the way, I, 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 I don't think you're wrong. I just would right? like a little clarification. What do you mean by it's not what you're saying is it's not responsive to treatment and lifestyle change. It doesn't respond quick enough. Yeah. So that's one thing. And another thing is that there is always a trade off between accuracy and uh, uh, sensitivity to interventions. Right. So some clocks uh, are extremely variable. So one, one person can be you know, younger and older on the same day. But that's exactly what you want. Right. You want to understand what makes you younger and, or older on the same day as well. And what 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 is it that makes you older and younger over a long term, uh, over a long time? Right. So I'll actually first answer your first question, like cholesterol modification. I actually agree with you. So it might be a defensive mechanism in the in a later life, right? We just, we don't know. We're just showing what needs to be changed in order for the deep neural network to uh, predict you younger, right? It's just, there are not that many things that, it's kind of like, think of it as wrinkles, right? So as as, as wrinkles on the face. So we actually do have a photographic aging clock, and I'm the advisor and the, the early investor in a company called Hout.ai. You should get them on the program. They're amazing. They cater to all of the uh, big consumer companies, pretty much everyone that deals with cosmetics. 
And they, they're run by a really wonderful scientist, a female scientist, Anastasia Georgievskaya. She published a paper with me called Photo Age, uh, where we took a very large number of uh, Germans from 17 to 70. The data set was consented uh, and provided by one of the largest consumer companies. And we demonstrated that uh, you can build an age predictor, with, which is 2.2 years accurate. So very accurate, right? And then you can use uh, different techniques, for example, covering different parts of the face to see where are the ma major features that make you older or younger. And that algorithm, that, that study showed that those features were around the corners of the eyes. So if you fix the wrinkles there, uh, you are predicted to be younger, right? Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be healthier or you know, younger, et cetera, but you are going to be predicted to be younger by the network. So uh, we follow the same kind of philosophy with with blood and other markers. Again, I'm not saying that it's wrong, it, 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 that it's right. It's actually possibly wrong and likely wrong because when you're talking about blood biomarkers, many of those systems are interconnected and this cholesterol, again, might be cardioprotective. Currently, there are multiple schools of thoughts, but we can at least show, so those this, this is just an experiment, right? So we at least can show that uh, you would be predicted to younger if you change some features and it, it comes from an algorithm. So mm -hmm. we, and it works on a biological system. So that's, that, that's, that's a great thing to, to, to see. So I, I cannot say that it actually will make you live longer yet. So for that, we, we need to have longitudinal data and nobody has done that before. But the thing is that if we don't try, if we don't test, and if we don't study this area in humans, we won't go that far. It would actually be nice to do this experiment on animals, uh, but it's just not something that I work with. Thank you. Next one up, we Thank have you. Keith. Hey, Alex. Uh, great talk. Very comprehensive and, and really exciting stuff. Uh, quick question here. So you had mentioned that you're partnering, obviously, with you know some companies in pharma and uh, maybe cosmetics industries. Are you currently partnering with any other types of industries or companies there, or do you have any plans for other ways? You know, some of these technologies have potentially broader applications that could serve as a way to bring more people into being aware of this kind of work. So I'm just curious if there's anything officially on the on the roadmap or still kind of thinking about it. So, of course, constantly thinking about it. You know, I come from a semiconductor industry originally, right? So when I was... Uh, Still in my early 20s, I made some money in that industry and that enabled me to go into biotech, right? And of course, I'm very, very interested in partnering with pretty much anything tech, right? The ideal partner for us would be like my dream job would be with Amazon, right? Because these guys can provide uh, longevity as a service in a very true nature and the true uh, meaning of this word, right? Because currently, they help you waste time. So all the consumer goods you, you are buying that you don't need, those uh, you know extra pair of shoes that you will never wear, uh, you spend a lot of time on, uh, on their platform searching and playing around with. And they also provide you now with content like Amazon Prime Video that basically wastes a lot of your time. And sometimes in, a, in your optimal state of health and well-being. So... It's only uh, natural for them, uh, you know, to follow the ESGR, some, you know, environmental, societal, governmental, whatever guidelines to give this time back to people. And uh, 
they accumulate a lot of data about you, much more than we can ever collect ourselves. And people trust Amazon. It's the most amazing platform. So, you know, if I could partner with AWS or, or Amazon itself, that would be a dream, right? So, of course, we're looking at those big cloud providers, but currently they lack this vision. And uh, my job partially due, uh, through those talks, and hopefully I can maybe ignite somebody else to, you know, bite those guys so they get this longevity virus. So somebody, uh, you know, at the very top thinks that, okay, well, you know, aging is the universal equalizer, one billion, two billion, three billion, five billion, doesn't make a difference. You know, you don't, don't, don't fly business class to arrive earlier. So it's just, you make your life a little bit more comfortable, but it's not necessarily better. So I think that the most impactful thing for this guys to do would be to get into longevity and really explore the longevity as a service. I think they tried to do something like that with Berkshire Hathaway and tried to do this insurance uh, slash uh, healthcare partnership. But then it's likely, you know, probably it ended up with some really high profile management consultants that turned it into just a very simple, plain business model that maximizes profit. So here you just need to maximize research and maximize uh, human life. So for me, you know, partnering with an organization that has a lot of data that helps you waste time in order for us through this partnership to make time, that would be a dream. So, of course, I'm looking at that and, you know, any possibility to work at the higher level of those organizations would be a dream. Thank you. And this is a good tag along to a follow-up question that I had. I mean, you mentioned a variety of different specific services that, that one can already access, right? Even young AI and so forth. What are next steps for those individual efforts? And is there anything that people in this group uh, could do to uh, to help those along? For sure. Well, I can come work for Deep Longevity uh, if they are qualified, right? Because of course, we definitely, we're, we're currently not super well funded. So we do have the funding. However, it's not super well funded yet. Uh, it's a public company. However, the stock is not trading at, you know, anywhere near the levels where it would be possible to fundraise much more effectively. Even though, again, to me, I think that's a hugely promising uh, company and area. So we are interested in people who can really turn it into a, a bigger business, specifically in those verticals, the insurance industry and, uh, and the clinics. And of course, we have the consumer-facing app. We are working on it to be able to connect the user to those two industries, both insurance and health and, and clinics. But that will take time, right? Because those industries also need to grow up in order to be able to partner at this level. So we are a little bit ahead of our time. And we were we always were ahead of our time, actually. At Silico, if you remember, 2016, I was presenting this generative chemistry. Nobody believed me. And now we're getting those mega orders from Big Pharma and also progressing the drugs through the various stages of preclinical development. Uh, so I think that we will we will get there sooner or later too. So we will get this longevity as a service going and connect uh, insurance and clinics. I hope that it will happen sooner than later. The way to help us is to come work for us or help us connect with those players more efficiently. Because right. I don't think that there are so there are a few groups that are also very dedicated to longevity in a very credit with, with a very credible business model and actually deeply admire those groups, but there are very few, right? And we're one of them. So we need to stick together and try to promote those businesses so that we, they become more profitable, more active. And we need to embed those businesses deeper into the major stakeholders that are currently driving the world, 
right? Because changing just one stakeholder, insurance will not change without medicine. Medicine will not, will not change without insurance. Pharmaceutical companies will not change without medicine and without insurance. Academia is not going to accelerate without, uh, so it's not a red race like in semiconductors yet, right? So without a huge consumer business. Uh, so in order for us to drive uh, the longevity as a service vision, we need to ensure that all of those areas are, are progressing very quickly and we cannot progress faster than medicine. So that's why we need to ensure that medical doctors are engaged, involved, and educated. So, you know, if you want to contribute, take the longevity medicine course and uh, give it to a friend. It's free. You get a CME credit and certificate that you can put on a wall. Yeah, I love how you went, ran through every different se sector and you were like, this sector is here and it could do this. And so, yeah, well, thanks for, for that bird's eye overview. I, I guess in particular on either and or machine learning uh, and aging clocks, do you have any predictions where there are interesting fields for folks that are excited about either using machine learning for uh, advancing progress on aging or really of trying to do something either by uh, really standardizing a bunch of aging clocks or something in that regard? Where would you see in particular those fields headed? Are there any particular future challenges that are interesting to take on? Because many people here in this group have an interest in this and are either already working in this or are currently putting their minds to it. So for sure, well, first of all, I think that the best way to operate in this field is to join one of the companies or academic groups that is already working in this area. I think that there are many more data types that we could work with in order for us to predict age and also try to understand it better. I think that if you are just in machine learning currently, and if you do not understand biology very well, you know, go into imaging specifically and go deeper into imaging, start working with uh, the MRI, CTs and, and other data types and ultrasound. I think that there is huge opportunity for advancement in ultrasound because that's where you can build better aging clocks, try to, try to get this very accessible data into the clinic. And again, I'm a huge fan of ultrasound. I really, if I had more time and resources, that's where I would go because that's uh, one of the ways to, to get into non-invasive diagnostics uh, uh, quickly and actually gives you a pretty good resolution of your you know, tissues and organs. And then try to combine ultrasound with something that is more uh, exotic, so like gene expression or mineralization levels or crosslinks. And I think that combinations of different very accessible and very exotic biomarkers is the is the way to go because that's the way to make the exotic biomarkers cheaper because some of the data types are very expensive right and and for some of them you really need require to have very advanced equipment and if you can substitute some of them or basically get the same answer to your question to your medical question from another data type uh, that is extremely valuable you just ask a question about ultrasound yeah. Have you seen that it works well with other species than just uh, humans? Uh, so actually, this is one of the very few data types where there is more human data than animal data. So to, to be absolutely honest with you, I don't know. Another, another really cool advice, and I've been thinking about this a lot, is if you, if you are starting your career currently in this area, or if you are thinking about switching it or going into business, I would recommend going into monkey business. So specifically looking at, mo at monkeys. So, because I'm talking to a lot of contract research organizations currently, especially in China, you know, that experiment on uh, monkeys. And it turns out that um, 
or the supply monkeys, turns out that most of the monkeys that are being supplied to pharma are exactly like three years old. Because if you are below three years, they are considered to be immature. If they're above three years, they are too expensive, right? Because you need to feed the monkey for one more year. Uh, so technically, most of the experiments are done in this kind of age range, right? So, so nobody is trying to mature them and look at them longitudinally. Uh, are you so talking about rhesus or marmosets? Doesn't matter. Something that is closer to humans than, than mice, right? And, and something that is intelligent and can jump on trees and exercise. So I think that having a really cool collection of data coming from monkey colonies, that would help us much more because then we would be able to actually, well, answer those questions that were also raised today. Well, what about cholesterol? What about if we, you know, turn it back? If we reduce it, is it good or bad, right? Is it going to affect your longevity or not? And those are the animals where we can actually go and, you know, sample the tissue a little bit more in a little bit easier way, right? Uh, of well, course, this is interesting. Yeah. I think it really mirrored also what we had Veronica Kohansky on here from the NIA. And exact, it's exactly what he said. Okay, what species can we find so that we're moving away from mice and we're getting a little bit more closer to humans? Yeah, because mice, they do, just do not live long enough to accumulate the same forms of damage that we have. One last question. If I'm now a potential customer, which website do I go on? So there's the longevity degree, but there's also young AI, right? Because at the beginning, when you mentioned, if you're not already tracking your health data, you're already losing out, right? Let's say I'm convinced. What are the easiest next steps to do for not just someone that may want to work for you guys, but also someone who is just really excited and wants you to use these products? So currently in terms of customers, we only, on a, from a customer perspective, we you B2B as the major segment, right? So it's if you are running an insurance company or if you are running a clinic, please do come to us. We'll partner with you. If you're a consumer, currently you can download the free app and uh, start using it and also report to us anything that you like or you don't like because currently we're trying to uh, you know, play mini Bezos and uh, basically put the customer in a chair and try to focus on user experience because... Uh, we have a weekly user experience call. We try to understand uh, what people like, what people don't like, and uh, what would make the product more sticky. Currently, it's a very experimental system, so we can you know, swing it in multiple directions, but we haven't pushed the trigger currently in terms of you know, where we want to go. So it just is an app which allows you to track biological and allows you to you know, tell us as much as you like. So you control how much data you give, you own the data, you can delete it, you can delete it, uh, you, you, you can get out of it anytime, but we won't keep it. And in uh, this context, we want to ensure that, you know, we just get user feedback to make a better product. And um, that's, that's what we're looking for. Did this conversation pique your interest? Maybe it even inspired a bit of existential hope about the future in you. Search for Fawcett Institute on YouTube or Twitter to stay up to date or visit Fawcett.org to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter and join our efforts. We are entirely funded by your donations, so please support us if you like what we do. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>